said, quote, yeah. that it took him 25 years to meet someone he could trust. No one knows what it's like. Today on Two Degrees of Bob, we sit down in Central Park for a chat with Frank Symes, the musical director for The Who. Behind blue eyes. Hi there, welcome to my podcast, the first installment of Two Degrees of Bob, and uh, that little thank you, Bob's Burgers, for supplying that intro for me. Uh, if you would like me not to use it, please contact my lawyer or just send a nice email and I'll stop using it. But my name's Bob, and I really defy any Bob out there to listen to that little string of, I think it's 23, 24 Bobs without being completely amused. Um, so I'm recording this intro, my first intro to my first podcast in my living room in Brooklyn, across the street from the Brooklyn Detention Center. It's about a seven-story um, jail. Not to give away our location or anything, but um, yeah, so why, why a podcast? Why Two Degrees of Bob? Well, a number of things. A, I listen to many podcasts and some of my favorite podcasts are just two three people in a room talking or on the phone talking so that's one of my favorite types of uh, podcasts and most of you probably know that the podcast world is just growing exponentially any fool with a laptop and a and a uh, internet connection can now have a podcast so here we go. This is our version. So I've met a lot of interesting people, and I know a lot of, uh, I, I feel like everyone in my life is fascinating. So this two degrees of Bob thing is going to be a combination of conversations of, of, uh, with, with well-known people that I've um, recorded over the years and recorded recently, um, conversations with, uh, with friends and family who are who are willing to talk to me. We'll see how that goes. And um, also, I want to talk to complete strangers because I've done that over the years many times in many places. And um, some of the most gratifying conversations in my life have taken place with complete strangers. So uh, this is not a complete stranger. This first episode we're putting up here is a is a chat that I had with Frank Sides. I met Frank about six years ago, five, six years ago, when I was working for a uh, production company in LA. I was hired to come up with some uh, documentary ideas for some, for some uh, musical acts, namely Led Zeppelin and David Bowie. And um, so that's how I first met Frank. He kind of schooled me on the musicality of those people and uh, in the process I got to know Frank I went to his house once in, um, in the San Gabriel Valley I saw him uh, he's in a Led Zeppelin cover band that I saw play at a at a little bar in Long Beach a few years ago and he just close your eyes and you are at a Led Zeppelin concert which I, I'm too young to have ever gone to so seeing Frank play at a play at a bar in Long Beach is about as close as I'll ever get I think um, 
And so now that Frank is, um, is on the road with, with The Who. He's the musical director for The Who, and he was kind enough to meet with me when The Who was in town a few weeks ago here in New York. And I met him at his hotel in Midtown, New York, and we walked about five, six blocks up to Central Park, took a seat on, in the grass, and uh, proceeded to chat for about an hour or so. This is my chat with Frank. Um, forgive the uh, if we have some audio issues. We're working on it. This is a new new uh, process for us, so we're working out the kinks, but hopefully it's bearable. I know the conversation was fascinating for me, and I hope you like it. So this is Frank Symes and uh, yours truly chatting away, uh, walking to Central Park, and then finally sitting on a little grassy knoll, actually, in Central Park, talking. So hope you enjoy it, and come back soon. Out in the street. Were you the first guy that he went on the road with? Yes, without, yes. Without he had done some one-offs. He had oh, never put a band together to tour and to do Tommy and all these other things. Yeah. So it was a real honor to gain that trust from him. And how did you guys, did somebody introduce you? Did yes, he hear uh, about you? He was putting a band together yeah. and he didn't like the guitar player. Yeah. And so he fired him and he got a second guitar player who turned out to be pretty good, but he was more of a blues player. So. Yeah. He got rid of him, and then he asked the other band members, don't you know a guy that can play my music? Yeah. And two guys in the band uh, were friends of mine, and they uh, said, we know a guy who could do this. Nice. Definitely. Yeah. So one guy was Rob Ladd. He was, played drums for Don Henley. I got him in Don Henley's band. Uh -huh. And another guy was a movie producer, famous movie producer, yeah. uh, who's a friend of mine, who's a big fan of mine since the Henley days. Yeah. Uh, his name is Knight. Nigel Sinclair. So they recommended me to Roger, and then I came in, and it was a surreal moment right out of a David Lynch movie because it was all foggy, and there was a cone of light, and he yeah. came sauntering into the makeshift rehearsal room at a nightclub in West L.A., uh -huh. and he, he, mind, he, he came sauntering into the front door mindlessly playing Behind Blue Eyes. No, he did. And I knew how to play it, and I knew how to sing it, so... Before you were introduced, before you were introduced, we shook hands, you guys were singing it. We yeah. hadn't shook hands. So uh, I played Behind Blue Eyes with him, and then he put out his hand and said, Roger. And I said, Frank. <laughs> he goes, yeah. he said, that'll do. So I was in. Hired. Hired. And then you went on the ride, and you, so and were then, you hired as a musical director right on the spot No, there, I was or? just a, I was actually the part. second guitarist at the yeah. time. There was another musical director, but this was a charity band. Yeah. I don't know, there were nine members or 11 members. It was a huge band. For a one-time gig or for, a couple gigs? It was a one-time gig at the Henry Fonda Theater, right. mainly for the industry, and then we had a warm-up gig for our friends and family Yeah. at a club in, Los, club in West Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And... Uh, so it took him three years to make a decision about hiring me as a musical director. After that Henry Fonda performance? That's right. Yeah. And Nigel goaded him about, you got to hire Frank. Yeah. He will not do you wrong. Yeah. So 
he finally called me and the first words out of his mouth is, will you help me put a band together and be my musical director? And I said, of course. Nice. And that was 12 years ago? <laughs> yeah, but no, that was uh, nine years ago. Yeah. And so, and then, um, you know, 12 years ago when we played the oh, warm-up gig, yeah. he s made his way through a sardine-like, you know, packed crowd and squeezed his way over to me and said, hey, Frank, what do you, how would you fancy putting a quartet, quartet together and doing a bunch of corporate gigs? And I said, I would fancy that. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun, Roger. <laughs> I would that. fancy that. Yeah. So is that what you guys <laughs> so, did? What, so did the, so that's, then three years went by and then we, I helped him put a band together and uh, we did put a band together. I, I uh, organized 33 uh, musicians to come in and audition, you know, 11 drummers, 11 bass players, and 11 keyboardists. Wow. And we uh, did a lot of uh, choosing by process of elimination. Yeah. Found three guys. Well, now, what, what's the criteria beyond playing? Because well, I'm sure when you get to that level, can everybody play? Everyone well. can play, but it's about the energy level and about, yeah. you know, the vibe. Yeah. Uh, you know, the inexplicable vibe. Can't even you feel it. good playing with somebody or you don't. don't I mean, want to spend countless you know, hours on the road with this guy. Yeah, it's like trying to describe Pete. You know, what is yeah. it about Pete that makes him an explosive musician? Well, yeah, he moves around. Yeah, he plays with, you know, with physicality. Yeah, but, you know, there's an element there that's, you know, indescribable. Yeah. And uh, that's what we were looking for in all the musicians. Yeah. And did you feel comfortable that you that you got that? Yeah, you know, at the time, I felt comfortable. We had to uh, change out, of, uh, switch out the bass player uh, and wound up getting a, a friend of mine named Jamie Hunting, who was just brilliant on the bass, an absolute genius on the bass. So he's now the bass player for Roger Daltrey. But at the time, we had Scott DeVowers on drums. Uh-huh and John Button on bass and Lauren Gold on keyboards. Lauren Gold wound up being the key, one of the keyboardists in The Who. Anyway, we went out, I put, we did a few tours on our own, and then we opened for Eric Clapton on a couple tours. You and, did? And then... Did you ever played with Clapton, or did you know No, you know but Clapton? I met him, and he's really nice, and we talked to amps and guitars, of course, and, mm -hmm. and he is just really a kind, lovely person. You, you pick a spot. You could be right there if you want. You want to sit on the grass? Right on the rock? Perfect. Ah, here we are. This is great. Have you got out here since you've been in town? No, I've been, I said, I haven't been doing too much. I went to the Whitney Museum, which is brilliant. You know, yeah. They spent $700 million on the new place. They did? Yeah, in the meatpacking district. It's incredible. Oh. So uh, anyway, um, so let's see, where were we? Um, so I, he and I came up with the idea to do Tommy, and he just basically gave me free hand at putting it together the way I wanted, which is a huge honor. And But I was uh, up to the task, and I put Tommy together in a way that had never been put together. How was it is, different? Well, it, we, I wanted to represent all the instruments, in, instrumental parts and vocal parts and horn parts and string parts and all that uh, in... Um, in a way that could be represented, reproduced on stage, mm -hmm. and um, so you don't want to have a, a studio version that you can't replicate. Well, on, what the Who tour. did with Tommy in the past, or Quadrophenia for that matter, or any of their songs, they just did a kind of a rock and roll circus version of it. You know, they just played guitar, bass, and drums, and had three vocalists, yeah. John and 
um, Roger and Pete sang, and you know, on the albums they had up to as you know six or seven vocal parts, mm-hmm. and I wanted to represent and be um, and represent all the parts, yeah. um, and that had never been done, so that was um, new for Roger, but he loved it, yeah. and um, and the Tommy tour, the world tour of Tommy uh, was very successful. I went to that in yeah. uh, Austin. Yeah, Cedar Austin. Hills, yeah, Cedar yeah. Park. Yeah, and so we went to Europe. We went, you know, France, Italy. We just had a great time with it. Yeah. And so there is a chance that because I already put Tommy together, that uh, the Who might do a, you know, version of Tommy based on that with Pete. Yeah. So. Well, at that point, there was no talk. Was there any talk of you going on the road with, with a Who, or you? No, it was no just talk in the of, moment uh, of that. Roger wants to go into her solo. No, was, but yeah. there was Roger had always intimated to me that if the Who do another did another tour, I would, he would like to have me participate in that. Yeah. And he said, no matter what Pete says, I'm going to fight for you. So as a matter of fact, and that had the potential to be contentious. I oh would think. yes, because you know there's inherent preten- uh, uh, contentiousness between them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well documented. Publicly yeah. known. Exactly. This is new. <laughs> and um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I'll include this later, more on this later. But um, Pete has called me the adjudicator between them, really? be- and within the whole circle, because I. You got that Zen handy, Buddhist mellow. Are, handy, are you Buddhist? I'm not, but you, you know have I have my own spirituality yeah. thing that I am actually writing a book about. Really? Yeah, it's about uh, music, movement, and enlightenment. But some of that uh, plays into it. Do you have a, a publisher? Or no, a not agent? yet. But I, yeah. I do have a, a couple of writers that could that will help me. Yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah. Along with my musicals and everything else I'm doing, you know, so. Yeah, and you're, yeah, you're writing a musical I, I wrote, well, my partner and I wrote two musicals. One's called The Door, which is a satire on the entertainment business, which may be redundant because it is a satire exactly. itself inherently. Yeah. And, uh, and another uh, satire on sex called Sex Rated G, a one-woman show with a man in it. So it's a comedic, oh. satirical and That's a musical, piece. too? Yeah, that's going to be played at the... Uh, uh, Fringe Festival in Scotland uh, this oh, August. Yeah, really? 28 days straight. Well, you, so you wrote the book I, and I, the music? Yeah, we wrote that together, yeah. Nice. So, yeah. And who's doing it? Uh, my partner, Lisa Verlo. She's performing She's it? She's performing it. Oh, nice. Yeah. So well, it's a multimedia cool. presentation. It's uh, it's quite, quite comical, you know. And, um, you know, it's poignant as well, you know. I mean, it's talking about, you know, cultural outlook, you know, our cultural outlook on on sex sex and, you know, our our mores, our uh, reactions, our reactiveness, all that stuff, you know. And from the, uh, and and with with your background, being in rock and roll, you have a whole different well, you might assume that, yes, well, you, you know. It would be, so. as an outsider, convince me that <laughs> my perspective is wrong. But you see, the reality is, you know, 99% yeah. impression yeah. or projection, so... It's never you what know. you think it is. Yeah, it might be yeah. something uh, related to, Moments. you know, reality, but it may be a projection, you know, like, oh, Frank, he must have had, like, yeah. a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which partially is true, but, you know... You know, a lot of it probably isn't. Not quite as crazy <laughs> as we might assume. But you look healthy and, and, and fit, and yeah. you're, you're crushing it right now. Yeah. So going back to The Who, yeah. uh, so from Tommy, um, we had a successful tour, world tour, and when it came time for The Who to consider doing Quadrophenia as a new tour, uh, 
Roger wanted to be the, me to be the musical director. So he approached Pete about it, and Pete said, no, I don't, I don't know this guy. And Pete's I always see. been the musical director, right? Well, no, do they, they have, they had, they have had musical directors, oh, but... Uh, uh, Probably Pete's guys in the you past? You there know, there was another guy, but I think um, he didn't um, take matters into... Uh, he wasn't quite as aggressive as I was. Yeah. Even though I have a even-keeled approach to it, I'm, I'm very firm about how I present things, you know, yeah. and, um, and I present them confidently and, in a way, aggressive because, yeah. you know, I don't raise my voice, but I'm firm, you know, yeah. so... But you've got some big personalities that you're, um, oh, yeah. that you're dealing oh, yeah. with. So Roger ultimately gave Pete an ultimatum and said, you know, it's frank or nothing. Really? Frank's going to be our MD, or I'm not touring, is what I heard. So. Wow. And tour and Pete can tour solo as Pete so Townsend, he goes, but it's just not the it's Right, not the exactly. So Pete said, all right, if, you know, if you feel that strongly about it, we'll try him out. Had you met him at that no, well, point? No, well, he came to a Tommy rehearsal and watched me play guitar and, you know, saw me lead the band. And, uh, Were you introduced? Was there any small and talk? He, he, inter- he introduced, and he was very cordial <laughs> and civil and lovely, and he in- introduced himself to every member of the band, left me for last, and then we had an hour and a half conversation oh. where he told intimate details of his life. Really? <laughs> and, and he loves telling stories. He's a fantastic storyteller. He's incredibly humorous, incredibly intelligent knowledgeable, yeah. lovely guy, articulate, you know, everything that you would hope him to be, yeah. he is that and more. Oh, so nice. we had, a, we just, you know... Hit it uh, off right yeah, away. Yeah, I hit it off, you know, and I, I think it helped that I uh, studied uh, English in school, you know. I mean, one of the things I tell people, what's the secret of success? And I said, well, improve your speaking ability yeah. and your writing ability. Yeah. It'll always help you in any area all the time exactly. and so especially in our culture now where everybody's got oh, yeah. abbreviated when they're it's, communicated if you right. can speak clearly and, and the, succinctly and the way it has become it's uh, it has become a culture where you know the it, your ability to express yourself and communicate has everything to do with how far you get yeah yeah so definitely and and not having that ability definitely can impede you i did some teaching and i was around kids and their attitude was so often like, why do I need this? I, I got the basics. I don't really. Yeah. It's so not true. Oh, you need so this your true. entire life. You know, I don't care if history is written by people who want to present a, a story um, the way they desire to. Um, you still should learn it. Yeah. I mean, because it will help you as yeah. a reference uh, to, to our uh, cultural identity as well as your personal identity. I mean, you know, memory has, is everything uh, to do with your identity. Yeah. And. Um, so, you know, study everything. That's what I say, you know, to the cast of my production, of, of the first production of The Door, which is the satire on the yeah. entertainment business. Um, I told the cast, I said, you know, focus is everything. And um, stay focused. And, you know, I said, um, uh, I said, the details are everything. The details are the work. Yeah. I said, you pay attention. So pay attention yeah. and be detailed oriented you know, at every step. When's this play happening? Uh, oh, it already happened in oh, Sierra Madre, but but I keep digressing because the Who story is sort of a narrative in itself, and yeah. Um, so anyway, back to the Who story is that um, I did Tommy. That was Pete, a long, Pete, Pete reluctantly said, "We'll try Frank out," 
and then I put Quadrophenia together in the same manner that I put together Tommy, which was to reproduce what was on the record yeah. um, and be true to what was originally conceived. And uh, that's exactly what I did, and it turned out to be great. Yeah. You know, and I brought in a couple uh, players and. Um, so and what then, do you bring in? So you got you got Roger and Pete, obviously. Right, and then well, Lauren was someone uh, I chose, and so he's the he's principal keyboard. synthesist, and yeah. then the, we needed a pianist, so I brought in John Corey. And uh, the, had he worked with these guys before? No, he had never worked. But John Corey has worked with prominent bands like the Eagles, Rod Stewart, um, yeah. Don Henley, and uh, he has written uh, 18 top 40 songs. Yeah. So he's he's, um, he's got some experience yeah. and some credentials. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you got those two guys. So those two guys, and then we started rehearsing in uh, England at Shepperton Studio, and it was sounding good right off the bat. And um, so those two guys and you. Yeah. And did you and did you get the drummer too? Or I got the, well at uh, in the beginning we had Zach, but yeah. he had some medical issues, so he quit the tour at, at uh, before the San Diego tour, and we got. Scott Devours, Roger Daltrey's drummer, to oh, take his place for the San Diego show. I got a call from London management uh, in London at 9 a.m. in Los Angeles, and they said, can you find us a drummer for this evening's show? <laughs> nine in the morning. So, at nine in the morning. Yeah, so I called that. Scott, and of course he had to do it, and it was almost an impossible tax task, but he managed to rise to the occasion and do it really well. I bet you guys were cutting him some slack though, just coming in cold like that with he no He knew about rehearsal. 60% of Quadrophenia and then he just wrote charts in a car on the way down using a CD player that, you know, that was uh, rewind wasn't working right. It would oh, go to the beginning of the show every time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but he shit. managed. He was an hour late to sound check and I got a little uh, you know, upset about that yeah. but he said I'll explain later. <laughs> and then Pete came up to the drum riser and said, Scott, you have a choice. You could either bow out because you're not quite ready, or you could choose to do the show. And he said, Pete, this is the chance I've been waiting for all my life, <laughs> and I'm not going to give it up. I'm going to play the show. Okay, and he so did all right? He did fine. So the 60% of the Quadrophena, he knew those songs from touring with, uh, with you guys? Or well, you, did you play beyond the You know, because Tommy he songs? was considered the uh, you know, de facto understudy for The Who, Zach. he kind of knew some of it, you know, yeah. about two-thirds of it. Yeah. You know, he was, you know, that's what you do as a musician. You know, if you're the next you're guy ready. in line, you yeah. learn everything you can you so the back that if that opportunity were to arise, yeah. you're ready. Yeah, especially a band like that. Yeah. So you guys um, went to Quadrophenia on the road after that? That's right. You know, I mean, it took about three and a half months of working 10 to 14 hour days, um, seven days a week to prepare Quadrophenia. Arrangements, yeah, arrangements. Yeah, I scored everything. I scored all the vocals, all the strings. and the, So, yeah, it was a, a massive amount of work. Then I didn't know how more massive it could be because that having done the work I did for Quadrophenia, Next step was to do the fifty, the, the Who Hits Fifty tour, yeah. and that was about five months of work, working at the same pace, of a, you know, average twelve hours a day, with about two or three days off. And uh, so, what does that entail exactly? Well, because uh, to me, the the 
the fan would say, these guys have played these songs for 40, 50 years, and they got it. They could play them in their sleep, no? Yeah, they played them in their sleep the way they knew how to play it, but they forgot all the background vocals that, you know, maybe John Entwistle had a hand in yeah. scoring or horn parts or string right. parts. They can't remember everything. Yeah. Pete does, doesn't write down any of this music. He only records it, so there's oh, really? no, you know paper version, you know. Um, he just plays it and records it and there's no yeah, paper record of it. there's no paper record of it. And so I was the first guy in the history of The Who to score everything the way it was recorded. Really? Yeah. And he goes, this is, you know, both Roger and Pete said, this has never been done before. Can they even read it, though? No, they can't. <laughs> but, you know, it's a record. It's a, hist yeah. it's a historical, yeah. you know... It's the, uh, it's the arc. It goes in the archive. It's, it's a record document. of... Uh, Exactly. And they you know, sign off on it. Exactly. Even though they it don't really know what they're right. looking at. I mean, you know, they know when it doesn't isn't right. And, yeah. And uh, one funny uh, quote from Pete was, you know, one of these days we're going to find a mistake in Frank's work. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. And how long so, have you been with these guys now? So I've been working with them since before the Olympics. I helped put the sequence together for the Olympics uh, oh, yeah. music. And then soon after that, I started working on Quadrophenia. So that, um, Were you on stage with them at the Olympics? No, they almost brought, brought me out to England, but uh, in the end, I, I did all my work on uh, Pro Tools at home yeah. and sent, just sent it to them yeah. by internet. Pete and I have a great way of communicating. Um, I might have uh, alluded to earlier when I, you know, I went to college and I started at college when I was 16 and I studied music composition and theory and then... Now where'd you go again? I went to four schools. I went to uh, Cal State LA, UCLA, PCC, and LACC. My dad went to Cal State LA. I went there to UCLA. Go. Oh, well. Oh, we got half so, of those covered. There you there. go. And uh, so I studied music early on and then uh, my middle period was uh, fine arts. So I still yeah. do... I'm going to be a part of LA Art Walk probably. And so I do, um, I'm good with faces and oil and uh, Painting, you know, watercolor sketching, and yeah. uh, charcoal and graph, graphite. Wow. And so I do that as well. Yeah, that's a whole other side of what I do. And then I studied English for about three years, you know, and uh, so creative writing at UCLA yeah. and uh, yeah. um, literature. So oh, and, nice. uh, I kept, uh, my dad was, spoke nine languages and was a legal attache for Gen General Douglas MacArthur. So he was kind of a, the in-house scholar among scholars. <laughs> your dad was the legal attache for yeah, MacArthur? Yeah, I remember right. you telling me yeah, that. he uh, co-formed co the language of the Japanese Constitution. Yeah. You know, graduated uh, second in his, uh, uh, from his law school at UVA, you know, and went to, went to Harvard himself. We both went to college when we were 16. And is your dad half Japanese? No, he's, he's Scottish, English, and some French. Do you have any Japanese in your mm -hmm. in your blood? Your mom's yeah, side? my my mom is Japanese. Full Japanese. Yeah, full Japanese. And did your dad meet her over there? Yeah, at the end of World War Right. Uh, during his uh, term with MacArthur, he met her and then came back a couple years later to marry her. Oh, wow. And stayed in Japan because he fell in love with Japan, fell in love with my mom and Japan. Wanted to stay in Japan, so he was stationed as a civilian, a retired colonel stationed at the Pentagon at U.S. Army Headquarters, Japan. Wow. Was yeah. it scandalous back then to, to scandalous? hook up? Well, to hook up with a Japanese civilian? No, it was Jap pretty common. It was officers often married uh, Japanese women. Yeah. So it wasn't, it was scandalous back in New Hampshire because he had left a, he had um, deserted a, 
uh, his wife in New Hampshire and caused a huge scandal, which he was, you know, harshly re reprimanded for. Your dad had a wife back home and he fell in love with an, your That's nice what happened. Japanese lady? That's what happened. Wow. And did you know about this growing up, about your dad's first no, I, wife? I got bits and pieces, you know, scandalous manners about your parents. Pieces you only, together you know, you, you got to gather the bones out of yeah. the skeleton, you know. I mean, out of the skeletal closet, you yeah. know. <laughs> I bet your dad's got a story worth uh, mm. a book. Has he written oh, a book? Yeah, did he write a book? No, he didn't. I wish he had. And it's really pretty amazing because, you know, he's talked about, I mean, he and I were drinking partners, you know. We, we were simpatico. I mean, there was no question about it. And and he, he and I were mutual confidants. So he told me about going out with chorus girls, you know, in New York and the, during the speakeasy era, you really? know. Oh, man. I mean, he was a ladies' man from the word go. Yeah. So. And he was telling you these stories. When oh you yeah, were a we would be drinking scotch till nine in the morning, telling At each other about. I was. Uh, it was between. I think it was around seventeen through. Uh, let's see. When did he pass away? Uh, let's see, I was twenty-seven when he passed away. So, yeah, something like you know, 10 between years yeah, ten years of hanging out, them. being drinking partners. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, Lisa, my writing partner, and my, uh, um, you know, my uh, girlfriend, um, and that, uh, with whom I've had a child as well. So the woman yeah. who's doing Lisa. the one act, yeah, your writing she partner, is and my your partner. partner. She's my virtual wife. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. How long have you guys been together? Uh, for 13 years. Good old 13. That's my favorite number. <laughs> 13. So we have a boy named Turner, and he's just a brilliant little. Asian Norwegian boy. He's oh. got blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> How old is he? He's eight. You got an eight-year-old. Yeah. And you got older daughters, right? Yeah, I have adult a, daughters. A, old, my oldest daughter is 28, and she's going to get a PhD from Harvard in May, next May. PhD in, in what? In uh, three areas: um, critical theory, sociology, and social justice. Jeez. So she's a award-winning uh, scholar already. She was taught four classes at Harvard undergraduate and has uh, just won an international essay contest that she wrote on her own without an advisor. She was very proud of that. Whoa. And she uh, was is published already. So. What kind of child was she? Was she, she just was, a, uh, super brainy and she was, knows She a worked harder than my middle child. My middle child was a natural academic. She was the one that, Audrey is my middle one, and she's now a director of a performing arts institute. and. She has studied all the arts. I mean, there's not an art she hasn't studied. So choreography, video art, you know, performance art, installation. Yeah. She did an installation in Copenhagen re recently, recently. And uh, my daughter, they're both musical. They both play, you know, multiple instruments and sing like birds. And so they have so many. You know, my, my oldest daughter Jessica, it was uh, is earning her PhD, and at the same time she had a band called Color Channel that was doing really what? well in Boston. You got you get a PhD at Harvard and in a band? In a band, yeah. You know, at Harvard, when you're getting your PhD, they go, okay, read these 3,000 pages in two weeks and uh, write, you know, and yeah. come up with two outlines for, uh, you know, essays, you know. So, right. I mean, it's like that. It's just massive big. workload. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, go to med school or, you know, it's just crazy. Impossible. Yeah. But she does it. So how did you, uh, what was the, how did you raise these mm. super children. Well, I showed them, you know, it's easy. Uh, well, it's easy. <laughs> it's no easy. No problem. No, you just show them the, the love of learning and, you know, 
the love of communicating and um, and to you know develop a desire a curiosity yeah. you know, unquenchable curiosity because yeah. there's so much to learn exactly. I mean I'm like that I read you know I, I would have been a neuroscientist if I wasn't a musician you know yeah. I just love neuroscience so much I read about 150 books really yeah I mean I'm friends with a, a Columbia professor who he just bought a big MRI the largest MRI in the world he's studying uh, um the brain at a molecular, atomic, and subatomic level, and um, I, I'm friends with him because I know enough neuroscience to have conver- scientific conversations with him. Well, how do, how do you? So do you meet just people in all walks of life doing this? Well, and yeah, you, you know, you meet greets everywhere. When you're playing at the level of the Who, you do the you kinds everybody. of people. Yeah, you meet people like professors yeah. from Columbia, you know, or you know, you meet people who are doing, you know, writing Broadway plays or whatever. You know, people at yeah. the top echelon of all the fields. Is it like meet and greets after, before the show, after the show? Is it, uh, it could you're be, hanging out at yeah, lunch one day yeah, in the hotel? I'll tell you what, without, at the, at the risk of boasting, it's like this. The, the Who is like a password. If you say, I'm the musical director of The Who, they, uh, yeah. you have a crowd around you going, yeah. tell us about your life. We all want to meet you. Yeah. We all want to befriend you. Yeah. I mean, in short. Yeah. That's how it goes. Exactly. You got so. the you got the uh, the the perks of fame right there yeah. at all times without having the 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 nuisance of having everybody in the world know who you are when you walk through the streets. That's right. It's and you beautiful. can you know pick and choose who you want to make friends with. Yeah. And uh, so you you have a lot to choose from you know and that's that's how it goes. I mean that's how it works in politics and in the, yeah. in the military or you know anything in the as, arts. A, as a curious person though I would think it's just so it's got to be so ideal because you hey you're getting these adrenaline rushes being on stage That's coming true. out at these yeah. venues and then the show's over and you you got all this downtime to yeah. read books and yeah that's true I'm, right uh, yeah. or you just constantly got your nose and uh, yeah. absorbing information and that's true and I and I, I do have an unquenchable unquenchable um, thirst for learning and knowledge I just you know I did my last two books one was called uh, This Explains Everything by John Brockman he's an unbelievable book 152 essays on elegant and deep theories you know my favorite elegant and deep theories yeah. by you know Nobel Prize winners and writers and yeah. artists like Brian Eno and, you know it's unbelievable writing and then another the, the sequel to that is uh, um, This Will Make You Smarter which is another like 150 essays you know nice <laughs> I, I just like, brain is like I'm on just like, steroids yeah, out there damn I'm just like the more I learn it seems like the older I get the more I want to learn yeah me too it's crazy I it's, wish I was this curious when I was in high school well they say you know youth is wasted on the young yeah yeah so maybe we can inspire some young people to, to get curious and yeah well, and ask well, questions speaking of uh, being on steroids you know when you're younger you just think life is going to last forever and your hormones are just churning away and you think oh my god i'm going to go out with 100 girlfriends and not have to learn anything yeah and uh you know or whatever whatever you do with you know your life and, uh, you know, later on you realize, wow, there's more to life than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when your hormones are raging, you know, your, your mind is clouded. Your spirit is clouded. That's at the top of your uh, priority list. That's right. And once, once you're well, thinking in with, with uh, the, the little head, not the big head, there's problems. Right. It's part of evolutionary psychology. Yeah. It can't help it. The hormones are 
impeding your senses. Yeah. You lose all perspective. And I would think on the on the road with the rock band, you're seeing the just the oddest human behavior on a pretty consistent basis. Well, you know, people are people, and but the way know. that you they react to fame, I, it's just, it, it intrigues me. Cause oh yeah, I I, I get a little bit. I get a taste of that, you know, because yeah. I'm walking around New York and people are recognizing me and or coming up to me. Because they were at the me. show last oh, time. Oh my God, you, you were fantastic, you know, and, and so. And, and I'm kind to people. I'm, you know, I think kindness. I put kindness at the, the as a premium in my list of values. And yeah. So I try to be kind, and but try to be, uh, you know, reasonable too. Give <laughs> <laughs> you all my time. Yeah. So um, so what's how's this tour been different than um, than touring with Mick Jagger? Well, happened. you know, with Mick, I wasn't the musical director, and yeah. um, so you're the hired gun. Player. You know, but I, he did pick me out of you know 650 guitar players, and he you did? Know, yeah, there was a database. Of, I found out later at the end. He goes, "Did you know, Frank, that there was a database of 650 guitar players from which you were chosen?" Holy I go, shit. "No, <laughs> I didn't know Damn. that." And he, you know, he whittled it, the 650 down to about 20 in New York that he auditioned in. 20 auditionees in yeah. Los Angeles. So but it was about I, 40 probably. He once you get down to the top 40, can you, what kind of ear do you have to have to be able to distinguish well, between uh, that guy can play? Oh my God. Is it that? Mick, well, it was a unusual audition because I must have played 12 or 13, 14 songs with him, and each song uh, was a new song. I, I had never heard the song that I was supposed to play. And, you know, typically, typically for an audition, they, they would send you a CD or a cassette or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and you would learn four or five songs, and you come in and play. And yeah. then it, you would give, get bonus points if you learned a few more. Right. <laughs> but in this account, this occasion with Mick Jagger in 1993, he uh, said, uh, first I met him, and we kind of had a nice feeling between us right away. I shook his hand, and he goes, you know, hi, Frank, you know, nice to meet you, you know, and he says, he says, why don't we play some blues? <laughs> so we played some blues, and then he goes, you know, it's all good and everything, Frank, but I I can't, I can't hear you. So he goes, would you play this Marshall 100 and say, oh, sure, you know, I'm sorry, you couldn't hear me. So I felt like, oh, my God, I'm a, I felt a little nervous about yeah. that, but he goes, okay, now we're going to, you're just going to learn this song. You're gonna, we're going to play it once, and you figure out something and just play it. So that's what we did for like 12 times in a row. He would play a song. You would come up with a part, you know, like this, like think, you just think Richards, think, you know, Ronnie Woods, think Mick Taylor, yeah. and just come up with an improvised spot, you know. And, and I'd been playing the Stones kind of music, you know, for all my life. Yeah. So it came easy to me. And, and I moved around. I did my bits Keith Richards without making it seem like affectation, <laughs> which it wasn't. I was, you know, doing it like... Uh, I was resonating with the spirit of Richards yeah. and, uh, you know, um, Did you channel, come I, with you know channeling him. Yeah. And, and, and so I, it wasn't like affectation at all. And I just uh, moved around and played my guitar and, and he liked me. And that night he secretary called me and, you know, at the end of the audition, he was being very funny right off the bat. And he goes, so who have you played with? You know, <laughs> Frank, you know, <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I play with Martha Davis of the Motels. He goes, oh, I love her voice. I goes, one of my favorite singers. Really? So, and it goes, who else have you played with? And I said, well, the Eagles, Don Henley he goes, oh, he goes, what's happening with them? I said, well, 
uh, he goes, oh, never mind. <laughs> and then he walks away for a second, then he goes, well, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> he seems like a pretty chatty, He's friendly. Oh, really friendly. Into the gossip warm. and the, yeah, the stories. So, so but while you're auditioning, though, is there, is there butterflies? Are you, are you, you know, excited or are you just... Part of the is you're just prof- so professional that those kind of feelings. I think part of the talent and what you judge for is how you handle the audition itself. Right. Not freaking out. You that know, you're, you're not for freaking Jack. out, and that's part of the audition. You know, what what is your stress level? And if yeah. you can keep your stress level down and be creative, that's yeah. what, of course they want to look for that. <laughs> exactly. You know, so it's like an actor. You know, even if they're, even if they do have butterflies, you you don't see it. You don't see it at all. Yeah. And they resonate with the character. You play the part. But I know you can. I know you can um, emote that. I'm. I'm cool, calm, and collected. But I'm asking you inside. Mm. Are you? Is oh. there, Are you roiling? Is that? Are you? So are the nerves? In the early flowing, days, or? when I, I remember being on stage in front of ten thousand people in Tokyo with my band Sunrise. Yeah. And well, yeah, were you the headliner? I, I, that? Or? No, no. We no? were just. A, it was a festival. Yeah. And. Uh, my band Sunrise played, and we did a good job. Uh, I had uh, horrible butterflies. I was—I uh, thought I would throw up, yeah. but I didn't. And uh, but since then, you know, the years of experience has definitely uh, ameliorated, you know, yeah. my uh, tendency to get nervous. I just, you know, when I get up on stage with the Who, I'm—it's work. Going it's, to the office. It's work, but it's—it's—I'm happy to be there, and I'm positive, and there's no nervousness. Yeah. It does. It seems like there's some very few negatives to being on stage with the Who. I would think. Yeah, I mean, if you wind up in the Who and can maintain your position, that means you're you you've been satisfactory at every level. Yeah. You know, because if you weren't, you wouldn't be there. Right. And you're it's staying. That simple. Exactly. I mean, he could play with anybody. You know. Yeah. But I've managed to solve all, resolve all these difficult issues, and you know, the management calls me Dr. Kissinger. Pete oh, really? calls me the adjudicator. You know, the guy who solves all difficult problems. And, Are they know, still button heads after all these years? Well, they just—they're two totally different characters. Yeah. You yeah. know, one guy's salt of the earth. You know, and uh, the other guy's like a professor. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like it's they're such from a different worlds. I know. You know? It's crazy. And, so I'm but kind that, of in between them, and they both look at me like, you know, okay, solve this one, and I do, you know, and yeah. I, I've solved all the, you know, all the issues. So now it's smooth sailing, you know. They never had that, I don't think. They didn't have a mediator in the middle. Sort of wasn't Keith Moon and Intwistle didn't seem like like that you know, kind of guy. It was uh, just a wild and woolly ride. I mean, that's just could be my projection, but I just think there was a lot more fighting and friction yeah. before, and. Uh, I think I got rid of all that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure they have, they're at it with each other when they're making decisions about, you know, making plans or something, you know, because I'm not involved in that. It's crazy but to think that they can still, there can still be that tension after all these years. You know years. what it is? You know what I've read? You know, that book that I told you about by John Brockman, yeah. it said, you know, um, conflict is inherent in the universe. Mm-hmm. It's just in our brains. The, what makes us different from a artificial intelligence, intelligence is that we have conflicting modes of thought that yeah. are battling for the, best, for the best possible outcome. Yeah. You know, and that's just inherent in, in the brain as well as in stars and solar systems and galaxies mm-hmm. and the start of the Big Bang, you know, the origin of the universe has started off with a conflict. Yeah. And so it's part and parcel of, uh, of, of a creative process, yeah. including the who. 
And so that's what makes them special. It's that all that confidence. I mean, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they were mm. completely different people. Yeah. But it's the friction between them and the conflict. That's what made them special. Yeah. It's like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Same thing. But, but you know, the, 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 the dichotomy between Pete and Roger, that, that, that seems like a pretty big gulf in the... In the grand scheme of rock and roll so maybe so ironically maybe the the greater the conflict the conflict between personalities the greater the creative output yeah (laughs) probably in their case it it definitely uh, i think it contributed to that the energy and that rage and that just danger that they had yeah you know, they make fun of each other, each, and, yeah. you know, they're mean, you know, they're on stage and you just go, oh my God, but that is part of, the, that's the uh, the expression of the conflict between yeah. them and it's inherent and it's good. Yeah. That's the irony of it. Yeah. It's not bad. You get rid of that and you've got two, you know, limp noodles. Yeah. You don't want that. You know. <laughs> they were able to channel all that rage yeah. and anger into yeah. You're like two guys that stick it to each other. Yeah. It's like this. Here, here's a, maybe this is metaphorical. A, a friend of mine that I grew up with, he was in my kindergarten class, third grade class. My name was Rudy. Perfect name. Rudy. But we, he, he and I got in a fist fight in PE class in the seventh grade. And he tried to see, he was making up all these rules in, for soccer, and we all walked off the field. He got very insulted. He wanted to punch everyone out. He was pushing everybody around. He left me for last. I was the next biggest kid in class. He goes, what about you, Frank? And then he took a swing at me. It, I had a glancing blow on my cheek, and then I, could, I nailed him in his <coughs> nose, right? Yeah. And then the PE teacher broke us up. But from that point on, we had a bond. I go, there's no, no better bond <laughs> that forms. Mm-hmm. Oh, except when uh, you know uh, two two guys fight and uh, they, yeah. they they work it out. They can get through it, and yeah. they can get through it. And they you learn to, you you find love after that. Yeah, and so you know that's there's or nothing resentment. more bonding yeah, between two guys exactly. than a fight. Exactly. Yeah, I can think of some some fight uh, fights in my past where I didn't want to ever see the person again. But yeah, if you can, get I've had through, those too. If you can get through that, oh, it's it's yeah, they're making great art still. Is there that's still right. does the tension still exist though? Tensions, you know. You, when you hear Pete, uh, you know, mocking Roger on stage in front of 20,000 people, yeah, I go, well, that's a little bit of friction, yeah. Yeah. You know. You know. And I can see Roger still get that getting under his skin. Too. Oh, yeah, and it's under his skin. He, yeah. you know, channels that energy, the <laughs> anger into his performance, and there you go. You get a, you get a who performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was doing all that research for when I was going to write that stuff for, um, for Roger, you know, I was basing it off of, that one hour we spent at having a, a drink, yeah. and he wasn't even drinking. And then I would read a bunch of stories about him, and it just this kind of op- the whole thing opened up and getting in his head. I, you know, you can only do so much yeah. from reading and talking to somebody, yeah. but I really got a sense of he's just a blue collar guy on the short side, and, and that everything sure. that comes with that, that sure. kind of background. So he had to learn how to be a fighter, yeah, and he is a fighter. But he throw that kind of guy in yeah. fame and fortune and like yeah. traveling the world. That's right. Fascinating. It is. To survive that and and to be in a band with a guy who's an intellectual. That's true. And who's tall, lanky, and homely. Let's not mince words here. And then Roger's a short, stocky, right. beautiful. The combination is yeah. fascinating. It is fascinating. Really? You know, I, remember, I heard a story where Pete got drunk and was saying nasty things to Roger, and Roger was pissed off at him and he said you know told him get you know go get 
whatever. Yeah. And Pete took his guitar and tried to hit Roger with it, and Roger ducked and then headbutted Pete, oh. and Pete and knocked Pete out, and was Pete wound up in the hospital. Oh yeah, it's like 30 years ago. Yeah, something like that. But but the, the fact that they can get through those moments through and keep going, <laughs> and they're the guys that survived. <laughs> they're the ones that live to tell about it. And the other two, well, the other two were chasing it pretty hard too. So that's, true. that's not 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 all that surprising. So do you guys have, you got a whole other, how much time do you have left on this tour? We only have one show left on this leg, and that's tomorrow night at uh, in Queens, and I would invite you to the show, but it's absolutely sold out. They're not allowing They're me all any sold more comments. Well, I appreciate the, I'm going to get in touch with you when you guys roll back through. You're, you're playing the guard in September, right? We're, I believe, yes, we are. So I'll text you that time, and maybe okay. we can make maybe that happen. Maybe we can hook up for that. Yeah. Now, there'll be other shows in the New York area. So they always book other shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So, but I will try to get you into the Madison Square Garden show. Awesome. I've never <clears> been to the Garden. Oh, have yeah. You, have you played the Garden? Oh, many times. Yeah. Many times? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the I first time Carnegie you played? Uh, I think it was with Henley and Billy, uh, Billy Joel's and Sting were on the bill. And then we went over to Billy Joel's house. After the gig? Yeah, and Christy Brinkley uh, brought and goes, Frank, would you like a beer? <laughs> Can I get you something? <laughs> And then we went over to Billy Joel's house. I like how that does. That's the capper of that story. And we and he played Carnegie Hall with with Henley. With um, yeah, with Henley. And we might have played there with Stevie Nicks. I might have played there with Stevie. Played with Stevie Nicks too. Yeah, for three years. You were on the road with her for three years. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. One of the singles was of uh, Landslide. It was a live recording of Landslide that was performed absolutely perfectly. So Love they just. That made no corrections and they mixed it and released it as a single and so that was my guitar playing she told me i played your guitars on landslide I, the I, single? I, she said i played landslide better than Lindsay. i don't know if you want to print that Can you see the goosebumps that's, right now frank so that's what she i got some me. goosebumps those are legitimate goosebumps i love that song i yeah. would play it without a single flaw every day every time i played it Really? Yeah, I must have played it a thousand times. I never made up one flaw when I played it. <laughs> that's my. How many rehearsals do you have to get to the point where you can <laughs> play it that well? Well, that it takes a, a lot of focus, yeah. a lot of focus, but a sort of a zen-like focus. So you have to be relaxed and rivetingly focused in yeah. order to not make a mistake. Yeah. Speaking of focus, I know you got a bandaid on your oh, thumb. Yeah. I'm, I'm like nervous for you. Your fingers are are yeah. gold. You, Fuck up your fingers yeah, and I was bleeding all over because I had to like wipe the carpet of blood from pouring. What blood. happened? I re I was sending a box home and I was using sealing tape and you know the sealing yeah. tape dispensers have a yeah. sawtooth yeah. uh, edge on it so you can cut it and I reached in my bag and I went like that oh, it just went like oh, that no. that happened today <laughs> you know on an angle on my thumb and cut it pretty deep today no uh, yesterday is that gonna fuck up no your I take plane? it off no no yeah. I, I'm I'm okay. Really? I'm okay. Have you ever had an injury to your fingers where you couldn't play? Long time ago, in when I was playing football. Play football too? I play football. What position? But I had to quit. Uh, linebacker. You were a linebacker in yeah. football? Where'd you go? Where'd you go to high school? Well, no, I went to uh, Camp Zama, U.S. Army, Japan. You know, dependent housing area, high school. A high school in a, in a dependent housing area. In Japan. In, in Japan. Yeah. yeah. U.S. Army base. And so, you know, you could have been there. I mean, yeah. I mean we're, we're all Americans. Right. And so I played football on a, in the ninth grade or eighth grade, eighth and ninth grade. And, uh, yeah, so I was a, 
little linebacker. I was tough. But tackle? I played uh, uh, defensive linebacker. But in tackle football, though. Oh yeah, tackle yeah. football. Yeah. yeah. Pads. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I was in a bicycling accident and I uh, dislocated my fourth digit yeah. on my left hand, so it won't close anymore. And uh, that was when I was about, you know, when I that that was when it happened and. So I, I stopped playing football and I opted for playing guitar. Yeah, I was gonna either play guitar. I had to, it was a crossroads. I had to fork in the road rather, and I had to either decide to play guitar or continue with athletics. So at that age, sports can have a strong pull. Pretty pretty strong. But you I, clearly the correct choice was made here. Yeah, I, I did win one trophy as a first string forward in basketball. So, in high school? Yeah, I like, you know, I'm still a kind of a closet athlete, you know. Still getting you play anything? You, no, you but, you know, like uh, I'm thinking about taking martial arts again. I mean, I've taken about four different martial arts. Yeah. You know, I got a guy who I teach guitar to that's a uh, te teacher of, uh, he, he's a SWAT team captain who teaches Army Rangers and Navy SEALs. And so he teaches me combat, you know, um, arts. Really? Yeah. To, to protect yourself on oh, the road? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah. all in keeping with that level of focus. Like, if someone attacks me, I know what to do. You know? Yeah. I mean, I can take them down in, like, one second. I can't. Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, Are you on high alert when you're on the road in these no, strange places? No, I don't feel like I, I need to. You no. Know? But I just... My, my boy takes Hapkido, and he's, like, passed halfway to black belt at eight years old. <laughs> really? So, yeah, there's, you know, he likes martial arts, and he's good at it. You know, it's a good father-son bonding. Yeah, you know, so he and I, we spar, and he's pretty strong. Already. Yeah. Really, pretty formidable guy. It yeah. must be tough for you to be, you're, you're away for long stretches, yeah, right? Yeah, but, you know, the level of bonding is so great with my family that, you know, we see each other once in a while. But, you know, my boy, when I left, he was so sweet. I go, you know, I'm going away for two months, a long time. We've never been away for two months. And he goes, he goes I'm going to miss you, Dad, but, you know, you need to do this. Yeah. Eight years old, he's saying that. No. Oh, wise yeah. little guy. No. He's seen you play, I'm sure. Oh yeah, he knows shows. Pete Townsend, and Pete said he looked at my boy and said, "Now that was me." He goes, "When I was his age." Yeah. Because I used to do that when my father played saxophone in a band, and I was looking from the edge of the stage, the foot of the stage. Oh. With right. my dad was up chin here. on my hand. Yeah. Looking up at my dad. And, that's, that was like me. So he likes my boy. Nice. Pete, Pete made friends with uh, Turner, and Roger is Roger and Turner go way back. You know, they played cowboys and Indians. Really? And he's got kids too. Oh yeah, he's got a lot of kids. Five kids and eighteen grandchildren or something. Like Five kids from different. Yeah. Same like, wife? No, I don't think so. But he's still I'm married, not right? Sure. It's the is, same wife. Is he one of those Tom Jones marriages? You know the Tom Jones marriage? I don't know what that is. <laughs> Tom Jones' marriage is married his um, high school sweetheart, stayed married, and and they had an agreement that when he was on the road, he can do whatever he wants, oh, but yeah. when he's home, he's a, he's a good I husband. I believe that's how he... That's 40 plus years worth. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. That, that, that kind of dynamic is... I, I want to be a fly on the wall <laughs> for that marriage and how does that work and how do you yeah, work around that these? Work that? That's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. So now you guys have your, I mean, the the, the tour ends 
end of this year, next year? You're, going, you're still coming back through America yeah, and you're going, going all through Europe? Yeah, we're going another leg of North America, and then uh, there's talk of going to other parts of the world, South America, Australia, Japan, uh, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, you know, and festivals in Scandinavia. You know, we could continue this for a while. <clears throat> and because everything is going so smoothly, I, it, there's a good chance of it happening. And are you cool with that? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, How do you turn down the hoop? So what, what are, are you playing on every song? Yeah, pretty much. Do you have yeah. something to do on every single song? Yeah, I play all different instruments. I play, I learned how to play the banjo. Spent a month learning how to play the banjo. Really? <laughs> and I play banjo on squeeze box. I play mandolin, another instrument I've never played with anybody. Uh, oh, on uh, the seeker, I play percussion on slip kid. I play keyboards on you know all these different things, and then I play other percussion, you know, tambourine and. Claves and background vocals, you know. So Pete and Simon are playing all the guitar parts, and, and yeah. you're the guitar guy, and you're not even playing guitar. Well, Pete introduces me. You know, he's our musical director. He put all this stuff together for us, and <clears throat> he's a fantastic guitar player. He says to me, you know, <laughs> I go, thank you, Pete. You know, and occasionally when Pete, it's not appropriate for Pete to play guitar. Like last night when he was being honored this award, yeah, he has me play guitar. Yeah, and he complimented me highly. On my playing last night, oh, which nice. was really nice. Coming yeah. from Pete, it's yeah. a huge compliment. What songs did you play? Oh, we played uh, "The Real Me" and "Who Are You" with Billy Idol. We played. Uh, <laughs> this is last night. Kids are all right. And substitute with Willie Nile, uh, "Summertime Blues," and uh, I can't explain with Joan Jett, and a couple of songs with Roger, a couple of songs with Pete, and then we all uh, and with Bruce Springsteen we played uh, "My Generation." And then every last night you played My Generation with Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Shit. <clears throat> I played with Bruce before. You have? Yeah. For what? For Don, at Don Henley's uh, wedding, and I met him at A&M Studios, and he's we got and along. You played with Bruce at Don yeah. Henley's wedding. Yeah. What song did you play? I can't remember. Maybe it was Unchained Melody, or I don't know what it was. Something. Just, just another musical yeah. moment. Yeah, a lot of people sang at the, uh, you know. Don Henley's wedding. Yeah. To Sharon Summerall. Yeah. We, uh, Billy Joel, uh, Jackson Brown, Sting, Bruce Springsteen, uh, John Fogarty. All those people sang yeah, at his wedding. Yeah, they sang at his wedding. And then for the after event party, uh, you know, Tony Bennett and. Uh, oh my sang. God. You know, it was amazing. It was like a $3 million wedding. Jeez. So is this stuff, is it getting old for you? Or is it you feel no, rejuvenated? I feel great. For... It's just part of my life. It's just, uh, you know, I want to finish my book. I want to keep writing musicals. My aspiration is to wind up on Broadway and yeah. get through the, the uh, you know, uh, seemingly, you know, impenetrable wall, you know, of, of the click of Broadway. Yeah. I want to get through it somehow. You just have to keep trying. It's just as hard as becoming the musical director for The Who. It's like someone... So asks you someone on the street, well, you know, do you want to be the MD of the Who, you know? And they go, of course. And they go, well, how, how are you going to do it? How? I have no how? idea. Oh, yeah, there's I no, no blueprint. Idea. So that's how it works in life, right? Like you have no idea how you're going to get through this impenetrable thing, and you do it anyway. Do it well. impossible. Yeah. Well, you've <laughs> already shown that, so you're gonna. I'm sure you'll be on Broadway, but you you have a you have a finished. Yeah, we have a. It could be a movie or a TV you, show or the you know it could be anything. It's a. Because it, it's about 
artist trying to make it. Yeah. And it's called The Door. It's about the metaphorical door that we all want to get through in life. I mean, it doesn't have to be an artist. Yeah. You just have, you foresee this life ahead of you that's Once just you beyond that this door. door. Yeah. And, uh, but the, the truth is when you get to the other side of the door, life There's becomes... more doors. <laughs> there are more, not more, just more doors, but the life that you achieve is unlike anything you imagined. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's usually more work. It's like, that's what I told the cast. I said, you know, the door, what it represents is uh, getting through the door and then finding that you have your burden with greater responsibility than you've ever imagined. Yeah. You know, and uh, there's more money, but you pay a price with your soul. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not your soul, but your flesh anyway. <laughs> Truthfully, I have not had to compromise my soul one bit for the who. Yeah. You know, no, it's just the flesh. You know, working 12 hours a day for five months, you know, yeah. for, for the uh, Who Hits 50 tour. That's paying with flesh. So that was that was basically you were arranging every song that they were going to possibly play on the That's right. There the was road. like, you know, 75 songs. And then, so I scored songs. 75. There was 1,600 pages of scores, extracted parts, lead sheets, chord charts, you know, lyric sheets, just in 27, you know, two-inch binders, all labeled. Uh, you know, in his foot, I mean, this uh, road case. I mean, Pete saw and he goes, is this your work? <laughs> and he just shook his head and he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> he just looked at it. Holy shit. <laughs> now, so now they have, you have all the, the music to the hand. It's the scores, the horn parts, you know, keyboard parts, everything. Just everything is done. How big is the group that you guys are traveling with? Uh, eight members. Eight oh, you're talking about how long, how large is the, the entire the uh, company of entourage? Yeah. I think there are almost 70. 70 yeah, people 70 are traveling people. the world with you guys. In, yeah, that includes truck drivers and, you know, bookkeepers, and how, light people. Do you get to know people. most of those people? Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't get to know them intimately, but yeah. you gravitate toward the people you feel kinship with and, yeah. you know, like anything anywhere else. Um, are there certain shows that are significantly better than other shows? That oh yeah, the last two shows. Yeah, we last three shows or so have been really. It just seems to the energy seems to. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just like everything is linking up and syncing up, and everything is you know on a spiritual level is really harmonized and. How so? Spiritual you know, level. How? how yeah, what spiritual do you mean? level. You know, it's like. I'm not a mystic, yeah. you know. As even though I'm writing about something that could be misconstrued as something mystical, you know, for me, you know, the word spirit comes is derived from "spiritus," and which means breath. <laughs> and uh, and so that. it's like uh, if you have good breath, you know, if you're breathing and simpatico with a friend, you're you're feeling good about yeah. life, feeling good about each other, and. And that's what's happening with the Who. It's yeah. like we, we have a great, you can call it a, you know, a flesh and blood machine. Yeah. You know, it's just, we're all do, trying to achieve the best possible, you know, and, and uh, eke out the best energy yeah. and, and communicate with the crowd. And but it's not like that every night? Because it seems like every time... It just concert, gets better. It yeah. just gets better. You know, it's unbelievable. Just tighter? You're not, yeah, you're missing, you're not missing notes? You're, yeah, how, how, you know, what's it better doesn't matter. It? It's not about missing notes. It's just about... The, the energy level and it, it's it's hard to explain that yeah. but it's just that we rise to a certain level of energy and it's a communal energy yeah 
So that's what it is. Yeah. It's just this community feeling with everybody, you know. It's yeah. like we're getting closer as friends. To me, one of the um, one of the great things about what you do, and I don't know how this feels, but I can only imagine what it feels like, is is um, making people that happy. Doing something that you're doing is provoking joy in other yeah. people. That's just got to be one yeah, of those you know, amazing happiness. feelings, especially the, a mass feeling of joy. You have the performer and you have the audience. It's like two people. Yeah. And you know, the happiness has a sort of a feedback effect. You know, you give someone a certain, um, you know, modicum of joy, they yeah. return it, they reciprocate, and with that reciprocation, you reciprocate again. And that just keeps going. Yeah. And it just rebounds to infinity. And that's what happens at a great show. Yeah. But you're, but it's, it's, it's something you can't even articulate, can't even... It's really hard to put it into words. It right. Is. You know, it's I know. just like, you know, how do you explain happiness? You know, what yeah. is that? Well, you know, you can you can say, well, you know, the the brain is lighting up. Yeah. You know, well, you can measure that. You know, and certain peptides are being released by certain, you know, neuro, neuro uh, you know. I'm actually writing a story right now on the health benefits of laughter. Oh God! So there you it's go. Pretty, right there. It's amazing, you know, like what happens opioids, to your body. You know, natural opioids are released, dopamine, yeah. and you have a flood of, you know. And it makes you feel good, and you live longer if you yes, laugh. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and music. And music lights moments, up your brain like nothing else. There's moments in a show where I, I actually I can distinctly remember that show in L.A. that I went to when you were first playing with Roger. Mm -hmm. It was downtown, and uh, there was that. There's a. I, there's probably a moment, many moments mm. in shows that you play, but I just remember when Bob O'Reilly starts playing. It's just that build up and the crescendo and when it just hits oh, yeah. people lose their shit does exactly. that happen every night people oh yeah lose their shit. that happens every night and does that get is that like do you just take that for granted is it got no. all because when people lose their shit that's that's incredibly powerful for them it is is that every are you feeling night is a, it's a, it's like a creative act that's appreciated to the fullest yeah and um you know it's creativity is your salvation they say yeah so it's like uh, a repeat of that every night, you know? I mean, you play. You know? It's amazing. How can, you, how can you go wrong saving your soul every night? Yeah. Again, I use the word soul, but... It's healing if you look at yeah, it, if you, know. you, if you look at it from that perspective. But, no. you know, there's also rock stars that are angry and they kind of have, seems like they have contempt for the crowd, their fans, and they get up there just because it, it seems very insular and personal, but best bands to me or combine the music and an appreciation for the fans and, mm -hmm. and the crowd and, and then it becomes a, a collaboration Absolutely. instead of like being wrapped in your solitude on stage like when Bob Dylan turns his back on the crowd I mean as much as I love Bob Dylan come, come on can't you just at least look at us exactly. when when Pete insults the audience he does it tongue-in-cheek yeah because in the end he shows the greatest appreciation for having been appreciated. Yeah. And so you know it. He's ironic. Yeah. He's, he has an ironic personality. Oh, he still wants to be the punk from 1965. So, so that's that's what's the difference between Pete Townsend and Bob Dylan. When yeah. Bob Dylan turns around, he really is contemptuous of the crowd. Yeah. He really doesn't like when you. When Pete's contemptuous of the crowd, he's joking. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. And the crowd knows it. Yeah. And he delivers it with the timing of a comedian. 
And the crowd appreciates it. You don't feel insulted. I, I laugh at Pete the whole night. Yeah. So speaking of laughter, that makes brings a little joy to me, actually. He's cracking you up? He's cracking me up the whole time. Yeah. I, I'm just, like, you know, doubled over laughing with him. Does he have certain lines that he goes to every time? Or he is makes like... up shit every night. Really? And it's, he's, I tell you, he's an improvisational comedian. Really? Absolutely. He makes the crowd laugh. He has them by, he has them by the palm of his hand. Yeah. Have you guys had any shows where you're like, oh, man, that, let's put that one, let's move on, and uh, that was not not, uh, not our best? Because I would think that you know, they've been doing it so long. Even their worst show is cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we Roger couldn't sing. We had to stop playing uh, the last five songs. Pete took over. He said, well, if Roger can't sing, I'll sing. Whatever. And then we'll have the crowd sing. What does it matter? It was still good. The, we got a great review that night. Really? Yeah. And Roger lost his voice. Yeah. And we had to cancel a couple of O2 shows in London. You, you know? did? Oh, yeah. We had to make them up recently. O2 is yeah. huge. That's like the... Yeah, that's two the... O2 shows. We had to cancel them because Roger lost his voice. But we still got a good review in Scotland that night. <laughs> because it's it's it humanizes the band, I, yeah. I would think. Yeah, and they can roll with the, pun- roll you know, they the punches. They don't They just like... It's about, like I said, it's about your attitude and yeah. your energy level and, you know, your humor yeah. and, you know, the delivery of the music, you know, it's just all that combined, you know. The, the music's there. The people know what they're getting yeah. musically. They're, they're, they're all in with that. Now if you can just show that you're having a good time yeah. and appreciate that we're there, yeah, you're you know, golden. The, the, forever. The, the Hoost really stands alone as the truly iconic band that represents whatever rock and roll rebellion means. You know, the spirit of rebellion and the spirit of, you know, God, having fun yeah. and what... You know all the things that that uh, rock and roll implies. You know, um, protest, um, a, a narrative of your the angst you've experienced, or whatever it is. Yeah, it's all that stuff that, that Pete talks about. And that's why there was an article I just read that, you know, there's a. It's arguable that that Pete's music is even more important in some ways than the Beatles, even though the Beatles had a has a huge fan base. Yeah, you know, probably six or seven times larger than The Who. Because <clears throat> I know The Beatles sold 1.3 billion records and The Who sold a couple hundred. Yeah. Or maybe it was 100 million. Maybe it's like 113th. Right. I don't know. But uh, it doesn't matter. You know, just because you haven't sold the greatest number doesn't mean that you're not the most significant. Yeah. And to me, Pete's lyrics, I told him this too. I said, you know, you really are the best in terms of narrative-driven lyrics. I said, the moment you say something in a song, we're already into the story. Yeah. Where there's a story. It's not just word painting. It's not just clever language. Yeah. There's a story that, it, the, that uh, you know, is the underpinning of the, of, the, of, of the motivation for writing that song. Yeah. And... And that comes through to me, you know? And I say, yeah, you know, Teenage Wasteland, you just say that, and it's just like, you don't have to say anymore. Teenage Wasteland, we get it. Yeah. We all, we all know that. Yeah. We all been there. You're telling the story of our lives. Yeah. You know? And he did it so well back then. Is it hard? Do you think it gets harder as the years go on to be, um, 
to tell the story of, of our lives as you get to be in your yeah, he's 50, 60, still 70s. writing. You know, he's always writing. I think he's writing daily. <laughs> but he's not. But the, the stuff he's writing now, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a weird... Activity, uh, you know, you're going to peek out in your 20s, you know. In your 30s, you might come up with something great. I don't know. Who I, knows? I Who knows? hope that we can, you can still keep making great things till no, he may, 60, 70. Clint Eastwood's still dr- directing yeah, just great movies. Time. Yeah, you know, he'll do something great. I mean... I believe he's capable of doing something great creatively still. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I you know, even though you're like, you know, most hormonally driven when you're twenties, you know, and you got all this testosterone in you to be super creative all the time. Uh, yeah. You know, you know I, I don't think you lose all of it, you know, as you grow older. No, not at all. Plus whatever hormonal drive you had back then can now I feel I feel like it's balanced out by the uh, the years and the wisdom and the whatever knowledge you've yep. gained, getting to where you are now, that's so. kind of hopefully so. balances just, all that. I other still stuff have out. a lot of creativity in me. I mean, I'm still writing musicals. And, you know, I'm not a youth anymore, but you know, it, there's a part of me that feels like it. You know, yeah. You know, so I'm when I get up, you come see me play sometime. You know, I, you know, I saw you I'll play lobbies to 100 people oh, yeah. at, at the bar, man, and to I got to tell you, after I, and I told you that that night. To hear you play um, Heartbreaker, oh, yeah. note for note. <laughs> I mean, I I got chills. Just it was like being at a Zeppelin. I never saw Zeppelin live, so that was close as I'm going to come. Is it hearing hearing your and Zeppelin that's not even band. my main band that plays originals and stuff. We have I have a band called Top Cat. And, you know, you know, we have songs on iTunes and uh, you know CD Baby and stuff like that. And uh, but we play some of the songs, you know, on there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to base. Uh, um, a new set of drawings uh, I'm going to do uh, on a song called Hollywood Friends and it's about um, you know uh, uh, functional sociopathy in the entertainment business and um, so it's all in the functional eyes functional sociopathy yeah you know you're not out there killing people but you're sociopath. climbing ladders on top of you know people's backs yeah you know so that that's what I'm talking about and people who aren't really your friends who act like your friends you know oh, yeah. I, I I find that despicable, but yeah. part of me. But I know how life is, and that that the entertainment business, uh, you know, uh, uh, churns out, you know, or uh, what? What is the word? Um, well, it attracts the kind of people that are susceptible to that kind of and, that behavior. Yeah, and gives you know gives birth to that yeah. personality. Yeah, and um, it's not pretty. So, yeah, it's. Have you, uh, have you witnessed a lot of that yourself? Yeah, it gestates. That's the word I'm looking yeah, for. It yeah, gestates. Entertainment gestates that sort of attitude, you know, sociopathic yeah. attitude, you know. And even if you weren't such a sociopath, it definitely encourages you to become one. Yeah, it cultivates if, it. You know, yeah. yeah, cultivates it, yeah, in the business, when you're in the business of entertainment. I mean, because, you know, no one's looking out for you. And, you know, so you're on your own and you act like friends to everyone. And I see that. And I, I know a bunch of people in L.A. who are like that. I mean, I do, and so I only have like two friends in LA, you know. Really? No, I mean, really. I mean, I could probably be fr- really close with you, but yeah, you know, two guy friends, like. Yeah, I understand. Uh, hard I to trust people, really is, and. Well, you always question people's motives, or do you do you really want to be my friend just because of who I am? Do you enjoy my company? Or are you trying to get something out of me? That's the that's the constant subtext of almost every interaction in LA it's really really disturbing it is really disturbing and so um, but I re- I've read about uh, 
four books on sociopathy, and I know how to pick them out. Really? Yeah. What's the What's the telltale signs? Yeah. Well, maybe we don't want to give it away here, but was it like lack yeah, of no, eye no, contact? No, no, no. It's a, part of it is uh, eye contact that is too long. See, when you're really when you're looking at people with a person who isn't sociopathic, they you look, but the social norm is to look away a little bit yeah. here and then you look away because yeah. it's not polite to keep staring. Well, <laughs> sociopaths don't feel any compunction about just just ga- just locking eyes and yeah. just staying there. Oh, interesting. And the people find it wow, how sexy of him, right. how confident of him. Yeah, but it's just sociopathy. <laughs> That's good to know. Now I'm going to be hyper aware. Oh, yeah, Anytime somebody see, locks in too much, oh, like yeah. the red flag's going yeah, up. But, you know, I have other cues. I know I have other cues. Yeah. Guys who try to act too friendly, and they, they haven't been your friend. They try to act like they're being all too familiar. Well, you get must get that all the oh, time yeah. just with the, oh, the who connection, of course. You can't, even, you can't get away with it unless you go incognito and I can't get tell people you're Frank the Plumber from uh, Sierra Madre. That is true. So you got you know when it's coming. You can avoid it. Oh if yeah, you, if you, I am if you a very I'm a you know I balance between being trustful and distrusting all yeah. all of them, you know yeah. all people. But I find try to find a balance. So I, you, I am a pretty good judge of sociopathy. I think now. Yeah. I think I am. Yeah. After, but you get you're out in the world. You get to go to a new town every few mm-hmm. days and mm-hmm. test your theories and learn more and. Yeah. You take? Do you get out and walk the, yeah, the towns? Yeah, I've walked, you know, several miles and every day. Every time you go to New York, I mean, you know, you got to walk. Yeah. So, yesterday I walked, like, you know, three and a half miles. Yeah, it's great. Did we get over to Brooklyn? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I was at, I played at Barclays, so I, I walked around there. A bit. Yeah. How was I that? I love show? Brooklyn. It's really changed. We live really five blocks now. from Brook, from uh, the Barclays Center, right oh, on that you street know, there. Well, it's really become a shishi area. You know, rent is higher there now, and yeah, it's all the, the, the parts of Brooklyn that are, you know, upperly mobile looking, yeah. you know, so. Big changes in Brooklyn. So um, you're playing a show tomorrow night. I, I won't keep you much longer. No, no, this I don't care. Great, we, man, I whatever, really however long it. you want, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It's such a park. I know, it's great. It's just the sun's going down. It's beautiful. It's not too hot. It's not too hot. It's beautiful. So you guys are playing um, Queens tomorrow? Queens tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, Forest Hills, yeah. What time? What's, what's your typical day like on a, on a show Yeah, day? we leave about 2.30. We have a sound check about 4.30. Do you guys all take uh, one bus over to the venue? or No, you take cars? We, have, we take different cars and, yeah. or trains. We'll probably take a train tomorrow. Train. Oh, yeah, because it's like a one shot, you know. It's like the you Queens. Take the subway to the yeah. gig? A train, yeah. Really? We did the Brooklyn because it's a lot faster. The you whole know, band? Guess, well, I don't. Yeah, think Roger. Pete and, and Pete, Roger yeah. take the train, but, the, you know. You took the train to Barclays Center? Sure. Really? It goes right to Barclays Center. I know, yeah. So, but to finish up about Quadrophenia the 1600 yeah. pages and 27 notebooks represents about a third of the work I did uh, another third of the work I did was improving the audio tracks we use because you know we use con- you know a considerable amount of audio tracks yeah and pre-recorded audio and I tracks. will create yeah. audio tracks or do scores of songs that we never even try or or get dropped from the master list because they they couldn't they just didn't work out yeah you know? because they didn't have enough people play them or I recorded the re- like uh, the horns for uh, uh, join together and Athena 
I recorded live horns. You did? Yeah, in different keys. No, no, no. I hire guys. Yeah. We never even used them. (laughs) But you can. But I. They're ready to go. Can. Yeah. Can. Yes. Athena. Athena. Played that one. You guys ever play that? Did we? No, we. We threatened to play it a couple times. We never actually played it. We rehearsed it. And whose choice is that? Whose call is that? Pete Athena, Roger mentioned Athena first, and then he didn't want to do it. Really? Yeah. I love that song. So, so then a third of it was audio tracks, and then another third was creating mixes and different keys, different tempos. Yeah. So I made about 300 mixes. That's a lot of work, you know, mixing uh, audio tracks and original tracks. You know, I mean, I have Quadrophenia, Tommy, and Who's Next at home. You know, yeah. So. So, so you were taking uh, yeah. some I mean, of their multi-track, stuff? you know, multi-tracks, yeah. you know, so digital multi-tracks and all this stuff, which is it's a huge honor to have them in my house. Oh, you got their their Yeah, tracks. I have copies of their analog recordings on that's been digitized. So you have every track of all those albums. Oh, multi-tracks shit. of all that. Yeah, I mean that's how I have to how I have to put the music together, and it's easier for me to have multi-tracks to like list to, to zone in on, you know. Surgically zone in on parts. And yeah. things, you know. Although background vocals, often they just recorded all the backgrounds on one track or two tracks, and so you still have to figure it out, you know. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's considerably easier to do it if you if you're not listening to a mix. Yeah. Yeah. Do they take um so they wouldn't take old tracks that they've recorded years ago and just put those into the into the mixing system? You got to re-record all that. Well, all you know, they want to hear like different different pitches. Yeah. You know, and I have ways to change the pitch. Like if we need to lower or raise or whatever, make it faster, make it slower, try different tempos. You know, what does it sound like with this instrument or that instrument? You know, yeah, emphasize, you know, do we really need this, you know, other guitar part? Yeah. We, you know, Are there certain songs where they just want to get it exactly like it was no, on the record? No, that's up to me. That's yeah. kind of my department to figure out how how close to the original we want it, you know. That's up to you? I'll present it, and then they either like it or they don't. Yeah. You know, but, you know, they've liked everything I've done, you know, like background vocals. Like, we have, uh, between Simon, Pete, Roger, Lauren, John, and me, we have seven vocalists. Oh, wow. So we can do up to seven parts of vocals, and we actually do six-part harmony, you know. Oh, what songs? Uh, Well, um, on a quick one... When he's while he's away, we there are six different parts, and uh, we practiced um, "Let My Love Open the Door." That's that's actually eight vocals, and um, you know uh, I can see for miles there are four, five parts, five parts. The kids are all right. It's actually five parts. Wow. You know, most people don't even know that. They think, oh, just three part harmony. Yeah. No, it's five parts. You know, we sing them all, and we do it. Wow. Which is great. It's like, wow. They, it's kind of like it illuminates the room when you hear it like, oh, my God, that's how it was. Yeah. You know? How many songs that um, that they had not, that they weren't playing before that you decided, Let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the instrumentation down here. I'm going to put this in the loop just in case they might want to play it. Um, I did that for, you know, we only played 22 songs on, on, on a show, 22 or three songs. Yeah. It's not I, the same set list every night, though, is it? We Close we change a few songs up here yeah. and there, yeah, to keep things interesting for us, and so that we're not reviewed uh, <clears throat> uh, 
in reference to the same set list yeah. every night. Yeah. Yeah. They have a deep catalog to go. So you guys are prepared for 75 songs. Yeah, we're not going to ever play that many, you know. But, you know, we we might change around, you know, five songs. You know, there's like five alternates, maybe ten alternates tops. Yeah. yeah. Five to ten alternates. And then we have a, you know, <clears throat> a base of uh, 20 songs, so 18. And how's that work? When do, when's, the, when's the decision made on what songs are getting played? Right before we play. Right, right, right before we play. Like right after yeah, that, that song's know, done, we're going to go to the right next Right after one. catering. Oh. Or during catering sometimes. Roger, Roger and I usually make the list. Yeah. And Pete says, sure, whatever you want. Yeah. Well, sometimes he's consulted. And how do you guys decide on, um, I've always wondered, what's the, how do bands decide on the, the um, encore? Oh, we don't play an encore. Yeah, the Pete and Roger thinks that's bullshit. No and encore. So we play what we Do you alert the fans that there's not going to be an encore so they don't just they keep know, on? The, most of the fans know that the Who don't do encores. Really? When we're done, we're done. They've never done they encores. They think it's charades. Did Roger do encores? Yeah. He has. I feel like with the show I went to, there was an encore. There was. Uh, the Roger tends to... But he he's inclined to not do encores as well. Yeah. Maybe it was... Uh, an exception when you came to see us and that it, we had such an overwhelming response in Abu Dhabi that we actually did an encore of three songs Abu so Dhabi. that's rare yeah we played in, at the uh, Grand Prix uh, after event <laughs> oh, shit. What's the, what's the I, I'm going to let you go soon man I feel like I'm, <laughs> I you're, could you're, ask you a million up. questions but well, what's, we could continue this could be an ongoing conversation yeah, you know? I would love to talk to you more about we will this write a book together. I'm actually um I'm starting a small press because I feel like um, there's so many people that I've met that have great stories and they're, you know, the, it's like going through the door. How do you get through the publishing door? Well, for eons, it was, you had the gatekeepers saying mm-hmm. yay or nay right. and you got to just get to the gatekeepers to even mm-hmm. have them make a decision. Well, Absolutely. now all that's done. This right. is a, it's, it's democratized. There's a, there's a publishing version yeah. of this is radio for, mm-hmm. um, you know, average, anybody can make it. Yeah. And the same thing's happening with publishing. So I think with my editorial background, and I've made some books on my own, um, now I know how to make books. So now I'm just going to start a small press, and I've got four books I'm working on. So you got a story that I'm sure you can find a, a big publisher, but I would love to just definitely stay in know. touch on this. You never know, and I want to see your, your musical, too. Yeah. For sure. That's got to get back to New York. That's true. What are you doing tonight? What's your What do you do oh, on the road? I'm like, could be. I have friends down things. in the village. I might go out to dinner or something. I don't know. You know, or stick around. You know, so I like to uh, do a considerable amount of resting and reading. <laughs> I read a lot. You know, yeah. so I'll go out walking and then I like to read. You know? So you stay in your room and read, or do you get out? I could, get out and about? I could come out here and read, or you know, Every get time. some dinner. Every time you Watch go a to, movie. you've probably got a great park. You get your book, go to the park, and... Mm-hmm. I do. I, I, I'm still, like, voracious about learning words and stuff. I'm yeah. crazy. I, you know, when I was in college, I took... I was When I was an English major, I had my own lexicon. I'd look up every word, like, out of a James Joyce or a Milton or whatever, and I'd look every up every word, and word. I knew, like, synonyms, usage. Like, I had my own lexicon of all difficult words. Really? Yeah. You like sprinkle them into, into your conversation because you use a lot of big words and most people don't know what the hell you're talking about. There's yeah, time you know, place. I have a huge vocabulary, but I can't use most of it. Yeah, 
You're familiar with it if you see Yeah, so if I'm reading fiction, usually it's fiction when people use bigger words. You know, I, I know words like illimotionary, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. And yeah. then, but, you know, and then when, you, when I get upset, I tend to, like, my, my, my daughter and I have the same problem. We use, we'll, we'll pull out a huge word that was inappropriate <laughs> and sounds stupid using yeah. it, you know, yeah. ironically. So that I have a problem with that. So I, you know, my head's full of words. <laughs> good problem to have. I don't see that as a problem. But, you know, communicating with Pete, sometimes we use big words. No problem. No problem. I understand you fully, you know. So he likes me for that, you know. Yeah. Because he kind of respects me for that, so. Challenges you intellectually in ways that Roger doesn't. I'll tell you what. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. You know, they think, oh, he's a musician, you know. I I, I could, uh, you know, intimidate him. I just got accosted the other day. Here? Yeah, he was, this guy wanted my hat really bad. He was almost reaching for it. So I looked at him like, okay, you need to back off. And I said, I gave him the eyes. I said, I'm going to kill you. I mean, I didn't say that, but I looked at him like, Do, you need to back off. I said, you're being disrespectful. And I, But I looked at him that certain way. You know, like, just reached out for your hat? I'll fucking kill you right now. <laughs> and I can do it in like two seconds. So don't fucking touch me. You know, so, and he went. You said all that with the eyes. I did, I did. <laughs> you know, I said, back off. Yeah. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Didn't mean like any a disrespect. Was like a homeless guy or just a drunken? I don't know, he's a big black guy. I Racist guy. I don't know. Yeah. You know, so, you know, but I know how to get that look and I'm not afraid. So they know, you know. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot done with a look. That's right. So there you go. That's our first episode of Two Degrees of Bob, with many more to come. I want to thank my guest, Frank Symes. What a fantastic day that was, strolling through Manhattan, sitting in Central Park, spilling my coffee on my phone. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to see Frank again when, he, when the Who comes back through New York playing Madison Square Garden in September. So we got that to look forward to. Um, next week on Two Degrees of Bob, Larry Zeno, our good friend, he's got a lot of interesting things to say, so Google him and um, check back with us and and uh, go to twodegreesofbob.com and just just root around there. Just check it out. But uh, if, if you go on the podcast page, we're going to list some potential guests that we have coming up so check that out and uh thanks for listening we'll see you next time the song is over it's all behind me i should have known it she tried to find me